Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for the cross where our sin and our shame was meted out on the person of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for your grace, for your forgiveness that is demonstrated in Jesus' nail-pierced hands. Worthy of praise, Lord, is the one who was slain for us, Jesus Christ, and it is in his name that we pray. Amen. If you would, uh, open your Bible to Revelation chapter 4. Uh, we are finally, after five or six weeks, returning uh, to our study of the book of Revelation. This morning, we're going to look at verses 1 through 3. Uh, we'll read the passage under consideration, then we'll ask the Father to grant us grace in the Holy Spirit as we pray. We'll then dissect the passage for understanding and application. So, uh, as you are able, would you please uh, stand with me for the reading of God's Word from the book of Revelation, chapter 4. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must, must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, gracious Father in heaven, we ask that you grant us grace in the Holy Spirit, that we might understand the God that we worship. Give us grace to hear, to see, and to feel, and to do as the Spirit would convince us, convict us, correct us, and comfort us, Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as we turn our attention to the book of Revelation this morning, and we particularly look in on the throne of God, uh, we will come to this understanding, I hope, that the God we worship not only knows all the events of human history, that he knows the past, the present, and the future, but that he has decreed all these events, and that he is the one who is guiding them. And so when we think about uh, our suffering, if we suffer and have suffered, whether it's in the past or whether we are currently suffering or whether we will suffer in the future, God has decreed those sufferings, and he is guiding our suffering, and he is guiding them for his omnibenevolent, that is, his always and only ever good purposes. Have you ever thought, as you think about life and you think about where you're living and the things that you're going through, is that I would like to know from God's perspective what my current situation means? I want to understand from a heavenly perspective what my current troubles mean so that I can pray and I can live and I can respond in the right way. Well, this is exactly what is happening here and it is granted to the Apostle John who was, as we have seen before, he described himself in chapter 1 uh, as he's describing himself to the churches, churches, he says he's a fellow partaker, a partner in tribulation and in kingdom and in perseverance that is in Christ Jesus. 
So John here is invited to see the situation that the church is in, the church uh, will be in, and what is coming from the perspective of the throne of God. So I'm going to do a lot of background here to help us get uh, into this next section as we finish chapters one through three, uh, five weeks ago. There might be some things that we uh, didn't cover uh, that we can cover kind of now to help us uh, navigate how to read the most difficult uh sections of scripture are coming uh, because there's they are highly symbolic so they're they, the most kind of the most difficult uh, passages to get wrap our heads and our hearts around um, are these things that are coming and so I want to help us uh, look back at what we've been through for the first three chapters so that uh we can get a framework for what that is in that will help us with the framework for the passages that will be coming and the sections that will be coming because they're the kind of the same. Each section is, it has, has some, some basic uh, perspectives. So as we look forward and we look back, we have seen that in this book, the things that were, we see the things that are, and we see the things that will soon come to pass. So to say that is to say that in each section that we study, we have as a framework the time from the first advent of Christ until his second advent and his immediate return. Secondly, we remember that when Jesus returns, he's going to make a distinction. He's making a distinction between who the faithful servants are and who the pretenders are, or who are those who are Christian in name only. Thirdly, that our time now is a time of spiritual battle, that we are in a war. And as we are in a war, then a question remains that in the war, will you and I remain faithful? That will be the big question that we must answer. As we are in the middle of war, it's not so much did you have victory in each battle? But it is, will you remain faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ through the battle? That's the question that is going to be asked of us upon the Lord's return. And fourthly, so there's this admonishment to the church and the individual Christian to live in the reality that the time of Jesus' return is imminent. It's soon. It is the time to live for him is now. The time to live in obedient faith to Christ cannot be put off until tomorrow. In other words, the Christian and the church collectively is to live with this sense of urgency. And we get that from looking at chapter 1 in verse 3. It says, for the time is near. So that was a truth 2,000 years ago as he's writing these letters to the seven churches, right? That, that the time is near, imminent. That is that we ought to live with this urgency that the master could return at any time. And the master, when he returns, will ask, uh, uh, will he find faith? Will he find us faithful? And so as we look at the overall structure of chapter four, I want to kind of give us this idea that it could be divided into two main sections. That is, verses one through six is the throne of God. 
And verses 7 through 11 are the worship of God. Well, originally I undertook to preach the whole chapter. But I gleaned so much from the first three verses that I will preach chapter four in probably three sections. Uh, this is part one of the God we worship. And next week will be part two of the God we worship. And then we will look at what the worship of God in heaven uh, looks like. So I'm likely to preach it in three parts. I may preach it in two, but we'll see how that goes next week uh, as far as uh, what we glean from this. So let us begin here and kind of dissect, start dissecting this uh, passage uh, in chapter four. Let's begin in verse one. And I'm just going to do the first part of verse one and we'll dive into that. After these things, I looked and behold. Well, after these things. So the phrase in the Greek is metatauta. This is a very, very important phrase. It's for, for us to think through because it begs the question, after what things? Well, I want to tell you what happened back in 1830. A New Testament scholar, he witnessed an utterance in a church that was led by this guy, Edward Irving. The utterance claimed this, that a new revelation had come and that the book of Revelation was now to be interpreted going forward according to a dispensation of time, a dispensation for the church, a dispensation for Israel, and uh, that there was this divided idea of Christ coming three times, coming once in the Advent as a, as a child, as we celebrated last Christmas, coming again for the church, and then coming a third time to rule and reign on the in the world. So from this point forward, right, and from that day forward until today, the interpretation of Matatauta, that is, after these things, was applied to the church in saying that the church had departed, that after these things look, I looked and behold. So the teaching has been from 1830, so this is really new, uh, that the church had departed at this point and that the whole rest of the book was futuristic. Okay? So I'm gonna, I'm gonna divide this for us and I'm gonna show us that that really isn't the case when you look at the text of scripture and what it actually says. So this interpretation was adopted by a guy named Darby. It's been, it was forwarded on to D.L. Moody and others and they interpreted the phrase here in Revelation 4.1. After these things, metatauta, to mean after the church was gone. And this interpretation, as I said, is new, 1830. And it abandons the historical, grammatical interpretation of scripture. So I want to show you how I've been, how I thought this through. And I'm going to take you through a couple of scriptures to, to help us by looking at, again, the structure and the purpose of this book. As we look at chapter 1, looking at verses 1 and 2, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. 
And he sent and communicated by his angel to his bondservant, John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus, Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So hang on to that phrase. Even to all that he saw. Then at, at chapter 1, verse 11, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. In one twelve, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. Then verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. So I want to get us to think about this from a literary perspective. That is, what literarily according to the scripture, according to grammar, does it mean after these things? Meta tauta, after what things? We got to think about that literally and literarily, right? So what does that mean? From a, from a perspective, after these things I saw. So it's tied to this. After these things I looked and beheld. After what things? After the first vision, I saw another one, right? So the book of Revelation is ordered by a sequence of visions, not necessarily a sequence of events. Although when we see in those visions, sometimes the events in the visions are ordered by time. When you understand that book uh, written is according to a sequence of visions. And so in that, we need to rightly interpret it literarily. That is, according to the grammatical structures and rules that apply to the original language. I am not a Greek scholar, but I have, I come to an understanding enough to know how the construction of Greek sentences are and how they are tied to one another. And so in this, after these things that in the Greek meta tauta, it's tied to the language of what came before it. What was the subject and object before it? Well, the subject and object was the vision. So it's tied to that. After these things, I saw. That's, that's what it's pertaining to. After these things, the vision. I had one vision, and that was the vision of the Lord Jesus Christ and his message to the churches. And now I have this vision. Behold, I looked and I saw. I saw a door standing open in heaven. So this is what he saw. This is what meta tauta after these things mean. So John is to give a testimony to all that he saw in, in verses 1 and 2 uh, of chapter 1 and 1, uh, 17. He saw the Christ and then he wrote to the churches in chapter 2 and 3 what he heard. Chapter 4, verse 1, meta tauta, after these things, I saw a door open in heaven. This is the structure of the book, the structure of the visions. Chapter 7, verse 1 tells us, after this I saw four angels standing at the corners of the earth. That's another vision. After these things, meditata, I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all the tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. Again, in chapter 15, another vision. After these things, I looked, and behold, a tabernacle of, uh, of testimony was opened in heaven. In chapter 18, verse 1, again, after these things, 
It's tied. Meditata, I saw. So it's vision. After these things, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory. So it's a lot about structure, but I want us to think about that because it will help us in looking at uh, all of the visions and all of the, the things that are upcoming. That metatauta is a big word after these things. And it's always tied, almost always tied to I saw. It's how the book is divided. After this, I saw. After these things, I saw. That's how, that's how it's laid out, um, literarily. So another thing that we want to look at, um, as far as structure in the book that's going to prove helpful, uh, before we dig into the passage further is that each section of the book is written to the churches that were established at the time of the writing. So we, we can see throughout this passage that the church is still being written to all the way from chapter 1 to chapter 22. So the, the, the church is not gone because the whole book is written. It's a letter written to the church. So we can look at that uh, to, to understand that. It's a letter written to the church that was in existence, that is in existence now, that will be in existence when Christ makes his return to gather the church. In chapter 1, verse 4, he writes, to the seven churches that are in Asia. So it's the present church. But if we look at chapter 6 in verse 11, we can see that the church has not left. There are those that remain, and they, the, the, the ones who have died and are in the presence of the Lord ask, how long, O Lord, till you avenge our blood on the earth? And the answer in heaven is this, is that there are those who remain until the number of your fellow servants and your brethren who were to be killed for the testimony of Christ would be completed also. So by implication, the church is still on the earth, right? There, the, the church is still there. So he's writing to the church even then. The God who we worship has decreed this spiritual warfare that we are in, such uh, that the church has, and it will endure this until he comes again. The God we worship, though, he has guaranteed the church. He's guaranteed the Christian that the one who stands in Christ through trouble as those who belong to the kingdom, they are those whose salvation will be preserved until his coming. In chapter 12, verse 11, it tells us this, that they overcame him, that is the enemy, by the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. And then in chapter 21, he gives us this guarantee that although we live in this world of trouble, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no longer any death. There will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away and he who sits on the throne says, behold, I'm making all things new. Write these words for they are faithful and true. So what happened in the churches in Asia Minor that we saw over the course of several weeks has been happening in the church for the past 2,000 years. Everything that happened in those churches, in those seven churches, has been happening for 2,000 years, and it is continuing to happen today until Christ returns. And the questions that faced the churches in Asia Minor are the questions that we, as a church, must answer today. They're the same questions. 
Are we being faithful to Christ and the instruction He has given us? Are we being lampstands that shed the light of the gospel on the world around us? Or has our light grown dim? Are we preaching the truth of the scripture? Or has false teaching entered our church? Are we faithfully confessing Christ before the world? Or are we given in to the pressures of the world? Are we living lives of holiness and righteousness? Or have we yielded to the temptation to compromise with the world and to participate in its wickedness? Those are the questions that we must ask ourselves. So, after these things, after he has given a description of the spiritual warfare in the life of the church in chapters 1 through 3, He's going to give a description of, in chapters 4 through 7, we're going to get, uh, as a whole, we're getting, we're getting a description of the heavenly realm and seeing from the first advent of Christ to the second uh, advent of Christ, we're getting that whole picture of uh, what it looks like from a heavenly perspective. So that is our guide. I know I went a long way to do that before we actually dive into this text, but this text is going to be rich, you're going to see, as we look at the God that we worship. So I want to go back and read verse 1. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. So in the second vision, the door of heaven is open to John. And John's given a vision, not of the church on the earth and Christ in the midst of the church, which we saw in chapters 1 through 3, but of heaven and a glimpse of the glory of God of heaven. The one who called John to see the glory of the throne is none other than Jesus. The same voice... You see, it says here, the first voice which I heard, verse 1, is the same voice of chapter 1, verse 10. I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. In here, and the first voice which I heard like the sound of a trumpet. He heard that same first voice, which our text tells us the first voice of the first vision is Jesus Christ. And John now hears him again, metatauta, after these things, after the first vision where the voice spoke to me, sounding like a trumpet, he is now speaking to me to come into the open door of heaven and to behold and to see what will take place after these things. The phrase metatauta, after these things, in the context of that vision and the context of the visions that are to come, paired with this phrase, look and behold, it is the language of the prophets. It indicates that it means what must take place in the latter days, in these last days. Essentially, what he's saying at the end is, come up here and I'll show you what, might, what must take place in these last days. What must take place, metatauta, after these things in the last days? And we know this because Daniel, it's couched in the same language as Daniel. In chapter 2, uh, verse 28, it says, However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. 
It's using the same phrasing. And then in verse 45 of Daniel chapter 2, Inasmuch as that you saw a stone cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true and the interpretation is trustworthy. The latter days of Daniel are the days that are at hand. The things that must soon take place. Metatauta, after these things in the last days. So let's dive into verse 2. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. John is called into heaven to see things from that perspective. See, it is only from the perspective and the vantage point of heaven, from the throne of God, that the things happen on her earth, the things that we go through, the trials, the troubles, can be properly understood. We can see them for what they really are, right? When, when we're going through a trial, do we, do we see it as it is? We see it, we see those things kind of as we are, don't we? Don't we see the world more as we are than how it really is? We see it how we respond, how we feel, how we think, right? But in order to get what, what's really going on, we need to see it from the perspective of the throne of God. We need to go upward and see how does God reveal what is going on here on earth. In order for us to understand that, we must look to the throne of God and see them how God sees them. I know that earlier I asked that question. Do you want to, do you, do you ever have that feeling like I would like to go and see from the heavenly perspective what's going on in my life so that I can understand how I'm, I ought to respond to it? Well, here's what John gets. And we should notice this, that John is in the spirit. Immediately he is in the spirit. John doesn't declare that he has been entered and transported into heaven. Right? That he's not aware, uh, he's in heaven, so he's not aware of his current surroundings, but that he's been transformed into a profound state. He's been, uh, he, in a profound way, he is in the spirit, that he might look upon the glory of God. John is in the spirit just as the Old Testament prophets were, such that they caught a glimpse of the throne of God. When you think about that, you can think about how the Old Testament prophets, were they translated and sent into heaven to get these visions from God? These understandings of the throne of God? Do you think of that when you think of Ezekiel chapter 1, for example? You can read that on your own to kind of see how this vision and that vision are, are closely tied together, right? That the prophet is given something in the spirit. I don't know what that means or what that looks like, right? But that he is fully in the spirit and he sees the throne of God. He sees the world from God's perspective. Ezekiel had that. Uh, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. You see that same thing with Isaiah as he uh, is in the spirit. He sees the throne of God, right? He sees what it is to look like, uh, what it looks like to see God enthroned. The same thing here is happening to John. But for the sake of time, I'm going to press on. So I want us to see what the purpose of the vision is. So the purpose of this vision is to show us that all things are governed by the Lord of heaven on the throne. That we must understand the condition of the world in a theocentric way. So that's a big word to say. That we must see the world as it is centered on God. 
and the throne. Everything that we experience here on earth should be seen from the perspective of the throne of God. Because he is the one who sits upon it. He is the one who is at the center of the universe. That is what John is translated into here. Immediately as I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. He is at the very epicenter in the spirit of the universe. And the God of that universe is the one who is in control of everything that occurs in both the physical and the spiritual realm at the same time. And this includes the spiritual warfare that we experience. This includes every trial and every trouble that we go through, that God is at the center. And when we want to make sense of our lives, if you want to make sense of your illnesses, if you want to make sense of your losses, of those you've lost, if you want to make sense of your faith, your focus must be firmly anchored upon and the starting point of your life needs to be motivated by the throne of God. You must first go to the throne of God if you're going to understand anything that you're living in this world and the troubles that we face, we must go to the throne of God. And I say this because in chapters 4 and 5 of the book of Revelation alone, 17 times the throne of God is mentioned. Clearly, God wants us to see that the starting point and the focus for everything else is the throne of God, the one who is in control, the one who is sovereignly governing this world. So John begins to describe the God that we worship in verse 3. And he was sitting like a jasper stone. He was sitting like a jasper stone. We have a description of the throne of God himself that employs symbolic language. So we need to understand uh, what these symbols are in order to understand the realities that they represent. So John begins describing God in this way. He who is sitting on the throne is like a jasper stone and a sardis in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. This is a vision. This is an actual sight of physical reality. What he does see, though, is the outshining of God's glory. And glory, uh, this glory, as he's describing it, is like in appearance to three things. First, he was like a jasper stone, sitting like a jasper stone. Not a jasper stone, but similar to a jasper stone. And this is used only in the book of Revelation. It's uncertain what it really is. But we're told some things, as we look forward at chapter 21... And verse 11, it can kind of help us uh, see what he's talking about. He's talking about the new Jerusalem descending out of heaven and having the glory of God uh, and, and having life. And it was unto this stone most precious, even like jasper, like a stone that was clear as crystal. We can see from uh, Revelation 21, 11, that this is a very precious stone. And that is it exceedingly valuable. And they also tell us that it's clear as crystal. Something like we would talk of a diamond. A diamond that, as you know, has great valuable value. And it's most valuable when it's flashing in brilliance without any impurities in it. So as he describes the God we worship on the throne, he is pure. He's describing God as pure and as holy of infinite value. 
This is what he's saying here. The God on the throne that he saw was like a jasper stone. He was pure and holy of infinite value without flaw. This is the God that we worship. Then the second description in verse 3 is that it was as and a sardius in appearance. That is another stone. The better spelling of this word sardius is sardis. And you might reflect that one of the churches was named Sardis. And you might recall that one of those cities in those seven churches that Jesus had written to was called, and you might recall what he said of that church. It is a stone that is blood red in color. It's like a ruby or like a garnet. And red is the color of wrath and judgment. Just like white or clear is the color of purity and holiness. And the reason why we say that red is of wrath and judgment is that we know this from the scriptures that blood must be shed for the atonement of sin. And the atonement of sin, the shed blood, uh, cause us to recognize that God is wrathful against sin. And the flames of fire that are in hell, right? They are reddish and orange, and they are the results of God's wrath against sin. And these two colors together represent the holiness of God, the crystal clear holiness of God without impurity and the red, the fire of, of wrath against sin. We see these two things at the same time in the God that we worship. We look at these stones as he has created them. And if all we knew about our God was that God was holy and pure and that God had wrath and judgment against sin, that God is just. If that's all we knew about the God we worship, that he was pure and that he had infinite value beyond any created thing and that he was a God who was exacting, a God of justice, a God who required payment for sin. If that's all we knew of him, we would be in a terrible condition. The world would be in a terrible condition. But there's good news about the God we worship. There's really good news. Because as he continues his description in verse 3, there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Remember the rainbow that was given to Noah as a sign. It was given to Noah as a sign that there was a covenant between God and Noah and his family and that they were saved from the wrath of God in the ark. And here we see this rainbow, the rainbow as a symbol of God's mercy and of God's salvation. It's a sign of God's goodness and of God's grace. In the center of the universe, there's a throne. And on that throne sits a God who is holy, who is pure, who is valuable, who is just who is exacting. On that throne, we see a gracious God who has given salvation to us in Jesus Christ, to those who believe on him and who turn from the sin that nailed him to the cross. And furthermore, we see that not only is our sin atoned for, but he gives us life because the rainbow was emerald in appearance, green. Green in the scripture is a symbol of life. Like in Psalm 23 says that God makes us to lie down in green pastures and to lead us beside still waters. You see, the God we worship is a God who gives us life. 
and who gives us life that is everlasting to those who would repent and believe. So when we look upon this seemingly uh, strange description of the throne of God, we see the fullness of God. We see that the God we worship is pure and holy and infinitely beautiful and perfect. And we see that the God that we worship is exacting and has the right to judge against sin. And that sin comes at a cost. We see that clearly on the throne of God. But we also see that he gives comfort and life to those who would repent and believe. The God that we worship is the God who gives life. And the life that he gives is everlasting to those who would repent and believe. So I ask this question as we close. Will you today be drawn to the God who gives life? Or will you face the pure and righteous God who will exact justice for your sin, the sin of unbelief? There is, there is categorically where the world stands, isn't it? We worship a God who is holy and pure. We worship a God who is right in all of his judgments. And we worship a God who by grace gives us life in the person of Jesus Christ.